There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. Lord, I just pray right now as we open up your word that, God, our hearts and minds would be open to receive you this morning, that we wouldn't allow ourselves to be distracted about ugly Christmas sweaters, what gifts we may get or give, but, God, in this moment right now, no matter what's going on in our lives, that we would pause, stop, and take this moment to focus on you, to experience you through your word, by your spirit, in your son's name, amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. If you guys were with us last week, Uh, We looked at Moses and the burning bush, and as we were there looking at that, there's a few things that really came out uh, that are kind of tentpole moments, you would say, for a lot of scripture. So if you guys didn't get a chance to to be here last week, I would suggest, I don't don't normally do this, I go back and take a listen. It's up online, Um, but one of the biggest things that we saw last week is from the burning bush, very purposefully with the grammar is that we saw is that God uses three names for himself in speaking to Moses. From the burning bush, he he calls himself the angel of the Lord. Then he goes as far as to say Yahweh. And then he says Elohim God, all in the same, all in that from that bush moment. And then Moses, in in trying to have this back and forth with God, goes, okay, uh, the angel of the Lord speaking, Yahweh speaking, uh, Elohim, you're, you're the God of my fathers, but what's your name? What if the old Jewish guys come up to me and say, oh yeah? Well, they wouldn't call themselves Jewish. What if the old Israelite guys, if they say, what's his name? The very way each one of us have our own name. Not a title. What is your name? And he says very emphatically, I am. And again, this is not just a a title, but it's literally him saying, this is my name. I am the ever was. I'm the ever present. The ever doing. The I am. And that would be the very name that when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, before he would go to the cross, when they ask him who he is, he expresses to them, I am the one, that son of man coming on the clouds, the I am, and the religious leaders, again, you guys try and remember this, is up until about 100 years after Jesus' ascension. That's still 100 years after that, that the rabbis were teaching that there was a plurality to God. There was one God who they served and worshipped, but they had this concept of of a plural. When they looked at the burning bush, when they looked at Daniel chapter 7, they said, something weird happens when you have Yahweh talking to Yahweh, one's physical presence, and they they have this dialogue a lot of times back and forth. So the rabbis were teaching up until about a hundred years after Jesus ascended that There seems to be this plurality. And what they really struggled with is when Jesus stepped on the scene, Jesus tells them, I am that second Yahweh that you teach of. And that's why they killed him. So we see that coming out of this moment with the burning bush. And and again, this 
the thing that, for us, application that I want you guys to even see from that is what Moses was struggling with. He's going, who am I? Wait, you're telling me to go do this thing, but who am I? And God says, it's not about who you are. I'm with you. And then Moses goes, I'm an 80-year-old chef. It's not even my own flock. I'm a nobody. And God goes, Moses, what's that in your hand? And he, and, and he just says, a rod. And God tells him that laid on the ground. And when he does, it turns into a snake. And, and for us, we're going to get into that imagery this morning, but what does that mean? Is that God is saying, look, when you lay down at my feet, when you lay before me the thing that you think has no value, when you trust me with it, that's when I, that's when I do my stuff. That's, I give life in those situations. And the illustration that God is wanting Moses to understand is what you think is no value in your hand. That laid at my feet it gives life. It is important. It has value. It, it is going to be it just a marker of God's power. For each and every one of you who would maybe stand in the mirror and say, who am I? Look at things in your life of little value. And God says, no, no, see, you're in my hands. That you are of great value. That he is saying, I'm going to do amazing things in and through you. And with that, that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, and I'm just going to actually look at verse 1. It says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say to the Lord, uh, they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is it that in your hand? He said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from there. Now let's not miss this. Moses is having Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the I am Elohim, speak to him from a burning bush. And, and he, he's got his sandals off, and he's and he Okay, I got this rod in my hand. He lays the rod down, and it turns into a serpent, and Moses pulls up, nope, 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 and books it out of there. It says that he just, he lays it down, and he starts to bolt. It turns into a snake, and he runs. And God then has to say to him in verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it. Again, this, let's not just let the Bible sit. It's just this old uh, text that we, we just use as you know, something that we study, but the moment he's freaking out here. Here's the snake, and he says, reach out and, and grab it, and he has to catch it by its tail. And he catches this serpent, and it became a rod in his hand. And God says that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now, I know we usually have Q&A after, but I'm, I'm going to ask a question for you guys that maybe you've asked, and there's moments like this, why a snake? Why the imagery of a snake? I mean, that, I mean this is going to be the miracle that God first shows to Moses, that he's going to tell to take to the Israelites. And the first one that will come before Pharaoh, why the imagery of a snake? I mean, when we think of serpent, usually we think of the enemy. We think of the craftiness. It's interesting, even the word here, uh, the word in this moment is the word nakash. It's, it's the one that actually takes us, you know, when we think back to when we went through our Genesis study of of that serpent. And then again, that fun play on words that was being done here. Now again, just for you guys who like to take notes and fun stuff like this, what's interesting is that there's another word that's used for serpent called tannin. It's the word that's most often translated as dragon. And here it's Nakash, yet when he's going to throw it before Pharaoh, it's the dragon. And so some people have this fun back and forth. Well, maybe one was a, a serpent and maybe one was like a crocodile and they get all weird with it. I think what really, when you, when you get into it to understand is the, the consistency throughout scripture, which we saw back in Genesis, is that there are two words that are interchangeable. 
There are times that you can use two different words to talk about the same type of thing in that depending on the context of the situation, you're putting emphasis on one versus the other. But it's just clear here that's what's going on. But again, why a snake? Why a snake? Is that the, the, the serpent to the Egyptians, it had a, a, a symbol of, of power, of wisdom. If you can think about some of the headdresses with the serpent on top. That they, they, the Egyptians, they saw a, a serpent as a means of, of something that signified power or wisdom. Maybe, you know, different area, which still go in East, Eastern. Think of, you know, Aladdin with Jafar and what was his staff? He had that serpent. There's an imagery here, and God's doing it on purpose. God's very on purpose here because something else that we're going to see, and I want to I kind of take some time here now because when we go through uh, what God's about to do to Egypt and for the Israelites, we're going to move quickly through it. So I want you guys to understand something is that what God is going to do here is that the magicians up to three of the first three plagues, out of the 10 plagues, the first three, Pharaoh is going to have magicians who through incantation are going to be able to repeat those same signs. And so even when it comes down, if you guys remember this moment, again, we'll, we'll go forward, but we'll, we'll get there, is that when he throws down, when Aaron throws down the rod and it becomes the tannin, when it becomes the serpent, is that the magicians through incantation are going to throw down theirs and it does the same thing. And now, again, so it brings us why. Is, again, this is on purpose. Is that what God is going to do, not only for the Israelites, but even for these magicians and for us to understand. Moses is not a magician. He's an 80-year-old shepherd of his father-in-law. And these magicians are going to come in with their incantations and and their focus on self-power, and they're going to try and duplicate. And then they're going to go to Moses and go, well, how are you doing this? I don't know. I'm just doing what Yahweh told me. See, they're going to focus on, wait, how? How do you gain power? How do, what, by what steps, by, by what works can we do these things? And Moses goes, oh, it's not by works, it's by faith in Yahweh. And there's a very purposeful, distinguishing moment here. And, and God's not afraid to do these things. God's not afraid to do these types of things of imagery that would, okay, what's it about? To challenge those, to ultimately bring them to a place of understanding, it's not by works, it's by faith in the one who is the one true God. See, the other thing that you're going to see, and sometimes you get into these people and they, they call themselves higher critics. They annoy me to no end. They call themselves these higher critics. And, and they'll do things where you'll see this stuff where they'll, they'll talk about this imagery and, and they'll say things, well, and they'll question the validity of the Bible because they'll say, well, really, isn't that just repurposing the language uh, of these other religions of the time that, you know, by the time Moses comes along and writes this stuff, that they're just pulling in imagery from these other religions? And the irony here is is that it's actually a consistency that we see throughout God's character to use the imagery that others ascribe to false gods that belong to him. Again, let's just take one that I've already mentioned last week and again this week. There There are many religions who ascribe to a deity or some god power of a basically a controller of the storm. There's an imagery that comes up. Well, they'll say that you know that he that you know that he makes a cloud his chariot. He rides about across the skies. They will refer. In fact, Baal is referred to in that religion as the cloud rider. And there's a phrase that's used there. And what God is going to do? In fact, He's going to do it in Psalm 68, Psalm 104, and again in Daniel chapter seven. That God stands up and says, "What you have allowed to be counterfeited in these other religions as a truth." God stands up to say, "No, I 
and the cloud rider. There is only one. And that the counterfeit is only proving and should be ascribed to the one true God, Yahweh. And that is why Jesus would stand before them and use that language. He is using, again, an imagery, a vernacular that people would understand. And and again, to to kind of put this in perspective, is guys, as I'm teaching you guys here on Sunday mornings, many times I will use cultural references that many at their core are anti-biblical. How many times have you guys had me refer to something from Star Wars or Marvel? Or I put in that context. And guys, the truth is, many, if not all, of that entertainment realm, this pop culture, is anti-God, anti-His Word. And much like Baal is described as the cloud writer, they will take imagery that belongs to Yahweh and try and place it on their characters. And the reason we, we bring this up is because they're just counterfeit, counterfeits of God's word, and it is God's word that is truth. Now, to not just, again, take my word for it, is this, when I say it's a consistency that you see that Moses did, as he's writing the scriptures down, inspired by God, he is using the vernacular and imagery of the people around him to say, you believe in this cloud rider, let me tell you about the one true cloud rider. Paul would do the same thing when he would go to Mars Hill. And they had all these people who were there worshiping various gods. And there was an idol to an unknown God. And Paul shows up and he doesn't come up to say, you're evil, you're wrong, you're stupid. How could you believe this? He stands up and says, you see that idol to the unknown God? Let me tell you about him. See, there's a consistency that God does where he has no problem saying, you have allowed a counterfeit on somebody else to describe what should only be ascribed to Yahweh. And that is why when we see this moment of snake and go, what is God doing? Is God's going, I have every intent to use imagery and vernacular that these people understand as strength, as wisdom and power. And I'm going to tell them that is in my hands. We continue on in verse chapter six. It says, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. He said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out in his bosom drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the later sign, and it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it out on dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. And and guys, here, what we're seeing God do is he's going to take these signs, these three signs to the people of Israel. And really, he's already beginning to show us what are going to be some of the first signs that he's going to bring to Egypt. And again, the imagery of that snake is the first to both groups, even to Moses himself. It says, then Moses said, oh, said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Guys, what we know is that Moses was brought up being groomed to potentially be Pharaoh of Egypt. He was a general in their army who is accredited with many victories. Maybe he had a stutter, but it did not seem to in any way slow him down when he was a young man leading Egypt into battle as a political leader. But now here he is trying to come up with, you know, some reason. He, again, and, and let's just put this out here. Forgive me, but I have to say this. Um, if you know anything about stutters, it, it is that you can 
have certain things where you work on to get better and to improve, but you don't have a stutter until you're like eight years old. It disappears, and then when you get into like your 70s and 80s, it comes right back. I'm just going to throw it out there. Let it lie for what it is. Okay, verse 11. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God is saying, I am not limited by human limitations. In fact, the very opposite. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God intentionally says, again, you can go back to, to moments like with Gideon. Gideon has this, this army that's going to go against their enemies. And God goes, you got way too many, and I know it's going to happen. If you guys win, you're going to think it's because you had this strong army. So he tells Gideon, cut the numbers down. Nope, sorry, Gideon, you still got too many. It gets down to 300 men. When you get down to it, the, the, the ratio of, of Gideon's army to the enemy is, is astronomical. That God has this pattern of saying, I'm going to choose the things that people, again, think have no value so that when I accomplish my will, you'll know it's not by any works that you've done, but because God is the one who did it. And we come to verse 12 as we started this morning off, and God said, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Again, this amazing encouragement, guys, that when God calls you, he equips you. And I can tell you right now, because there's so many people who try and do this, well, I'm not called to this, I'm not called to that. God has put out this great commission to every single one of us to go out into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our towns, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, I don't know if I'm called. You are called. I'll tell you right now. If anyone's here, I don't know. You're called. If you have placed your faith in him, he has called you. But the encouragement is for anyone who goes, but I don't know what to say. What if I fumble with my words? God goes, don't worry about that. I use fumblers. I I use the weak things to, to overcome what people think are strong. And I do it. And he says, here's the amazing thing is to know. And I want to encourage you guys with this, that not only will God call you, he will be with you. He will teach you. God is saying, I'm not going to say, hey, I've called you. Good luck. Get out there and do it. No, God says, no, I'm going to be right there with you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God, I don't know what to say. He's like, I'll teach you. And how does he do that? In fact, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh, guys, look at this next verse. Verse 13, but he, meaning Moses, said, oh, my Lord, please, sin by the hand of whomever else you sinned. Basically, he's trying to get out. God, I'm nothing. God goes, oh, I'm with you. I'm just a shepherd. Oh, yeah, throw that stick down. See what I can do. Oh, I'm a stutterer. I got you. I'll teach you the words. I don't want to do it. That is what it has come to with Moses. And verse 14 says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, guys, later in Exodus, Moses is going to tell us about how slow to anger and quick to forgive God is. Psalm 103 and 105 will say the same thing, that that God is slow to anger, that God has been having this conversation. He is patient with Moses. But please understand that Scripture also makes it very clear that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and quench the Spirit with a heart that hardens itself, that says, I won't do it. And that is a heart that God goes, that I can't stand with. So God says, and he said, it's not Aaron the Levite, your brother. 
I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman, uh, spokesman to the people and he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God and you shall take this rod from your hand, for, yeah, from in your hand, which, with which you shall do the signs. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now, just for the sake of, there's some debates on, guys, the chronology of, of this chapter, meaning the timing of things gets a little wonky. We just heard God say, hey, I'm calling your brother Aaron. And then later we see Aaron, but they're back on the mountain where the burning bushes. And so there's some wonkiness that goes on. You have people with various opinions, and there's good opinions both ways. I'm just going to give you mine. What scripture in chapter 2 make clear, or sorry, chapter 3 of Exodus, is uh, some of yours, especially in the New King James, it says that, that Moses went to the far side of the desert when he went to take the sheep. It said to the far side of the desert. Uh, when we get back again to uh, some early manuscripts, what it makes clear is it says that he was headed west. He went to the west side. Bryce, why are you giving this boy in geography? This is why. This is my opinion. Moses goes west, east from his father-in-law to the mountain. He's on the mountain. God says, look, you've given me all the excuses. I'm calling your brother. By the way, I just called Aaron. So Aaron's now making his way, which is hundreds of miles away. Then Moses has to go back east to his father-in-law and say, and he could have said, which we don't see here, he could have said, hey, Yahweh, you know Yahweh. You guys worship Yahweh. Well, by the way, the Yahweh, yeah, he spoke to me in a burning bush, and I'm supposed to go to Egypt. He doesn't do that. He goes, uh, I think I'm supposed to go to Egypt because maybe they're all still alive. I don't know what he's doing here, but, but you're going to see some frustration continuing on with God and Moses as he's kind of dragging his feet here. But Jethro goes, you know what? Okay, you head on back. So now, I say that because chronologically he went back east, tells his father-in-law, he is now headed back west. He is making his way towards Egypt, so he's got to go back towards the mountain that he saw the burning bush on. All right, now that we're there, it says, now the Lord said to Moses in meeting, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Again, why do I bring this up about the, he told his father-in-law, I'm supposed to see if the people are alive. And God, while Moses is still back in Midian, I told you to go, go. I know you're afraid, but everyone who wanted you dead, they're gone. So get going. So there it is. Then Moses took his wife and his sons, who were teenagers at this time, and set them on a donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Again, I don't want to just pass that over that stick that he saw no value in. That Moses at 80 years old goes, this, this thing, this symbol, this symbol of, of my fall from political power. And now it carries that title. God says, no, that's, that's the rod of God, the rod by which I'm going to do amazing things through. Just our, as we are in God's hand, these amazing, valuable tools that he says, I can do amazing things with that. You just have to be willing to lay it down at his feet. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, just for sign being, we're going to see a pattern. This is the second time that Pharaoh has been mentioned. We're going to get into this next week. But if you guys go back to when God is speaking to Moses in the burning bush, he says, I'm going to do these things, and you're going to go to Pharaoh and say this, but Pharaoh's going to not want to let you go. I'm going to have to act myself. 
You're going to go, you're going to tell them, and Pharaoh's going to say, uh-uh. This is the second time it gets brought up, and then God says, and I'm going to harden his heart. We're going to see that pattern play out next week. Anyways, we're going to see this pattern that Pharaoh hardens and God affirms. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel, my son, my firstborn, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Again, who is speaking? This is Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Elohim, the I am, who just says that he, he's telegraphing everything that's going to happen. Guys, uh, again, kind of sorry, spoiler alert, is we just saw the first sign with the snake, and God just said, I'm giving you that final sign, that final plague, and God says, I'm the one who's going to do all that. And he's telegraphing all of it. This is predestination and free will all over this passage, and it's going to play out in front of us where God says, this is what's going to happen yet still allowing Moses his free will within the moment. This is what's going to happen, yet Pharaoh still being. And again, I know these things are complicated, but they're both played out as truth in God's word right in front of us. Verse 24, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Whoa, wait, what, 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 what? what? Did you guys catch that? Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. You're going to help get my people out. Moses is on his way, and God goes, I'm going to kill you. What? How did we get here? What just happened? Well, let's also do a few things here. With the language, there's some debate. Was God going to actually kill Moses, or was God going to kill one of his sons? Again, I'll give you my opinion. I think, in my opinion, that he was actually saying that he was going to kill the first son. This is my opinion, partly because the language before this is God just was talking about first sons. He says, Israel is my first son. He gives him the plague. I'm going to take out your first son because you're going to refuse. And then the next thing we see is God says, seek to kill him. Some of the language implies that it could be Moses. Some could be first son. Why do I have this opinion? Let's read on. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. What? So God calls Moses to go to Egypt. Moses is dragging his feet, but Moses is on his way. Then God says, I'm going to kill you. His wife goes, okay, this is bad. Circumcises her son. Does something funky with the foreskin. And and God goes, we're all good. What's happening here? Again, let me give you some of my opinion on why, again, I believe first son. So we got to kind of back up to Jethro a little bit. Remember when we talked about Jethro, he was the priest of Midian. The Midianites who were descendants from Abraham who knew about Yahweh but had kind of started taking on other cultural things where they kind of just added God, Yahweh, to the mix of their other gods. Being a priest of Midian, rabbis have this teaching where they say that what Jethro did is when Moses wanted to marry his daughter, being a priest of these multiple gods, he says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to commit your firstborn to me. You're going to commit that he's going to follow our ways. They did not practice the covenant sign of infant circumcision as did the people of Israel. That is why Zipporah knows what to do here. So something goes down. We don't know if Moses gets sick. We don't know if God shows up to them and he knows. But something happens and Zipporah knows right away what to do and to deal with the situation. The deal is, is that we have a son who is not following Yahweh. 
He has not committed. This dad has not consecrated. And so that's why you could go either way. Was he going to kill the first son? Moses could have been either one. Maybe God's saying, you, I'm holding you responsible, Moses. You did not follow what your people are supposed to do in consecrating yourself to me. So here we have this moment where you have a dad who has allowed his son to not follow in the ways that God says, no, these are, these are ways that show a commitment to me. And God takes this serious. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1-7, through 7, it says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy, for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children is submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And so here it is. It's here's Moses, and he's not ruling his own house. His father-in-law Jethro, this, this priest of these multiple gods, yes, he has a knowledge of Yahweh, but he's just kind of like a good luck charm added to the mix. And he has a son who is not consecrated, not following in his ways. And as God is sending him to Egypt, there's an issue here. And God says, and I am deadly serious about this. And they knew right away. And so that is what this scene is about. And so that is why verse 26 said, so he let him go. Then she, Zipporah, said, you are a husband of blood. Other, other versions say a bridegroom of blood. Because of the circumcision. So what is this whole deal with circumcision? If you guys remember back in Genesis chapter 17, we were first given this sign. And what was this all about? Genesis 17, 10 through 14, God says to Abraham, this is my covenant, what you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in your flesh in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who was born in your house and he was bought with money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who was not circumcised in the flesh for his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Abraham is walking into Egypt to be the spokesperson, the mouthpiece, the tool of God. And God says, you're not ruling your house because your son should be cut off. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for your son. And he's incredibly serious about this. Paul and Romans would make a little bit more sense for us about what this whole thing is about. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Paul would say, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is the circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Guys, this is the same imagery we see in baptism today. What Paul's saying is, guys, the whole circumcision thing, that doesn't save you. That doesn't bring you into the family of God. It was a sign of a commitment. That's just an outward example. That, that, that doesn't actually bring you into the family. That has to be something that's done in the heart. Again, it's the same in imagery with baptism. Baptism does not save you. Baptized or not baptized does not change whether you're going to heaven or not. 
It's in that relationship with God. Have you been baptized by his spirit? Again, I think the imagery that I really like with that is, I guess, I've told you guys, this is, it's, it's a wedding ring. I am married to my wife. I'm wearing a wedding ring. I know some despicable men think this, but it's not like if I go, oh, 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 I'm not married. Married, not married. doesn't work like that. I'm still married. But if I was to put this in my back pocket, walk around all day, my wife would see me without my ring on and say, uh, why aren't you wearing your wedding ring? I said, ah, I don't think I want to wear my wedding ring. What's my wife going to say? Put on the wedding ring. Yes, I will. Putting it on as a symbol to everybody to know. That is the command God gives in baptism. That was the command in circumcision. It is not the thing by which they are in a relationship, but it's the signal of the relationship, and it has to do with down to even. It is a, it is a marriage symbol. That is where that title, you are a bridegroom of blood, comes in. It all comes back to this relationship and the symbol and imagery of. Verse 27 says, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. This is why I bring this up. Because you're going, wait a second. The mountain's like back in Arabia, Saudi Arabia. Moses is supposed to be on his way to Egypt. He was at the burning bush on the mountain. Aaron's meeting him at the mountain. I thought he was supposed to be on his way to Egypt. Again, he went back to his father-in-law. He was on his way to Egypt. While God said, by the way, you need to get going, he had told Aaron he needed to show up. It takes a while for Aaron to get there, and they meet up at the mountain. As another quick aside, we don't really see Zipporah and the sons after this. We kind of get a scene from this that Zipporah takes the sons and heads back to dad. So traveling with a young guy from Horeb to Egypt who's had a procedure would be a little bit rough. So she goes and takes the sons back home. But Aaron shows up. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. And guys, again, as we're, we, we end there for this morning, it's, aside from all the weird, what can seem as weird, imagery here between Moses and, and God and him, is, is what, what do you guys take from this? Is that I want you to know that God is calling you and he will equip you. He will teach you and he will be with you. God cares how you live your life. This God who is slow to anger, quick to forgive. You can't just add God to the mix. That's what Jethro was doing. You can't just add God to, to I'm going to go about doing my life. I have these different things that lead me, that I give my attention to, that I, that I spend my time with. You can't just add Yahweh to the mix and just sprinkle it in like it's going to make good. God goes, no. Because there are many counterfeit, false gods, all who are pushing for your attention and your worship. And they will speak and promise you pleasure, power, and fulfillment. But guys, there is only one true cloud rider. And that is Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and he is our bridegroom of blood. The imagery there is, again, as a, as a Jewish male who would have been circumcised from eight days old, 
Again, I know this imagery can be weird, but what did it mean? It all came down to, to being important when it came down to the marriage relationship and to understand that this commitment, this marriage was preceded by blood and the removal of flesh. And that is exactly what Christ did as he went to that cross. He shed his blood to proceed to say, I have removed that flesh so that we can now be in this marriage relationship. This God who so loved you that he gave his life so that you can know and have eternity. And again, that this is not by magic, but it's by faith in him who created this world formed you in your mother's womb and calls you by name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together. And Lord, I just pray that, uh, God, as we continue on with this morning, as we're about to partake in another symbol, that again, God, we wouldn't get our minds preoccupied in, in, in religious actions, but God, we would actually understand who you are and what you want us to know about you through these moments. So Father, thank you for these passages that sometimes can can seem awkward and weird. But God, I'm awkward and weird and and you love me and and it's so refreshing that as we see this old guy here, this this Moses, is what you, you want to tell us by these passages is that you're not looking for us to be what the world says is perfect, what the world says is powerful. You just want us to come as we are, to lay our lives at your feet, and you say, I can do miraculous things with that. That you are our bridegroom, preceded by the blood of your cross to remove our flesh, that we would have eternity with you. And Lord, would we just take this moment, this moment of sobriety to just say thank you for who you are and what you're doing in our lives. In your son's name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derived from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at SickosBeatSuck797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal. <laughs>